some of these connections around this pandemic is I feel like we undocumented people are so used to living on the edge. Conditions have forced us to live on the edge. And I think we have to find our peace and our strength on that edge. This is Jose Antonio Vargas. He's a journalist and a writer and a close friend of mine. He also founded Define American, where he makes media with a goal of changing the narrative. He came here when he was 12 without papers. Recently, he mentioned the similarities of living under the fear of coronavirus compared to living as an undocumented person. And I asked him if we could record that conversation. Here's the thing that I struggle with, Erica, is how do we make our undocumented experience? How do we insist on the universality of what we're going through? Right. Like our experience. And I struggle with this a lot, you know, as an as an undocumented gay Filipino is how do I use my identities as a bridge instead of like its own wall? I actually think this moment has has kind of really revealed not just the similarities and the parallels, but also where that perseverance and that strength comes from. One of the things that came to mind when a lot of people were complaining and you know, I, I am complaining too about being at home. I was remembering when we were getting ready to have my mom seek sanctuary. You might remember this story from episode four. My mom was facing deportation proceedings, so we started to prepare for her to seek sanctuary in a church. Preparing for that and knowing that she could have been stuck in a church. It wasn't even her home. You know, it wasn't even our, our own house or her house. It was her literally preparing to be indefinitely in a church without being able to see a lot of people outside other than her family coming in. That was anxiety provoking for me. We actually got a church to agree to let her stay there. They had a shower, thank God. Um, and it was like this small room and we were like going to Ikea and to all these places to get like furniture for her to be comfortable enough to be there for who knows how much time. And really, I mean, in detention, now that I, we're in this situation, not that I see Americans struggling with being, you know, in their houses without being able to leave, that people feel like they don't know what's going to happen in their future and the uncertainty of their future. Jose is undocumented, which means he can't leave the country because he wouldn't be able to come back. So one of my favorite writers is this woman, Susan Orlean. She's a tremendous writer. She wrote this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal right in the beginning of the pandemic. It was pretty It was pretty early on. It was March, actually, late March. The headline, never taking travel for granted again. Mm. Crossing the globe had never been easier until the coronavirus reminded us of the real meaning of distance. I was so pissed when I read this article. Yeah. I can only really see the world on movies, right? That's why I like to watch a lot of movies. And sometimes I really hate watching movies because I hate that I can see, you know, Mexico City or see Brazil or see Paris on film, but I can't go there. He has family back in the Philippines that he hasn't seen in forever. He hasn't seen his mom in 27 years. One guy sent me a note two weeks ago about, if you really loved your mom, you would go leave America and you would go see her. And, you know, I actually thought about that. You know, when I was writing my book, I was like, you know, I never planned to be, I did not plan to be a professional undocumented person. Like, this is not what I signed up for. And I'm thinking to myself, like, we as undocumented people 
in many ways, our lives are dependent on how flexible and adaptable we are. Yeah. Right? Like we have to adapt all the time. We always have to find windows we can open when doors are literally shut in front of us. I really worry a lot about just mental health and depression and how how we think of ourselves as essential people when people only think of us as essential workers. Mm. Right? Like, like, you know, here in California, right? Like, I mean, the fire is happening around here. And you see, you've seen those images of the farmers, many of whom are undocumented, right? And they're there. Doesn't matter if there's a fire. It doesn't matter if there's a pandemic. It doesn't matter what it is. They got to go do their work, right? Yeah. And they're doing it because of their kids, right? And I keep thinking, we think of those farmers now as essential workers, but we don't think of them as essential people. Yeah. I think there's sometimes where I do feel a little bit of resentment because I want to say to that person sometimes on social media, there's a reason why we left. And that was because we didn't feel safe. Yep. And just like you are not feeling safe right now in so many ways, it is the reason why a lot of people left their country to be in America. And so I just hope that this moment would give people enough conscience to understand the immigrant experience. Mm. I find a lot of freedom in knowing that whatever I'm going through, somebody else is also going through it. And somebody else had already survived it. This is Homeland Insecurity a podcast about how we all became the enemy. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. In this episode, we're going to talk about immigration in the time of COVID-19. What happens when a dangerous immigration policy collides with a global pandemic? In early 2020, while much of the world was doing everything in their power to prepare against a coronavirus outbreak, the Trump administration was definitely not. We have seen dramatically fewer cases of the virus in the United States than are now present in Europe. It's something that we have uh, tremendous control of, and I think we're going to win faster than people think. Except, of course, when taking coronavirus seriously would benefit their larger policy goals. The Trump administration has been obsessed with destroying the core belief that we are a nation of immigrants. We've seen that in all kinds of policy moves since he took office. The so-called Muslim ban, kids in cages, and of course, family separation. The president and his team have not been shy about their disdain for migrants. For me. The nation must set and enforce a limit on how many immigrants we admit each year. Since 2013, the United States has admitted more than half a million illegal immigrant minors and family units from Central America, most of whom today are at large in the United States. Tremendous problem at the border. People pouring in, and it means crime, it means drugs, it means so many other things. Now, under the cover of a global pandemic, the Department of Homeland Security sees the opportunity to implement even more extreme and cruel immigration policies. In this episode, we're going to talk about Remain in Mexico, a dangerous policy that dumps asylum seekers from around the world into Mexican border towns to wait indefinitely for their court hearings, and how DHS has doubled down during a global pandemic, despite knowing full well that doing so will lead to massive sickness and death for those they don't consider essential humans. Buenos días, ¿cómo estamos por acá? Milady Tamayo Salgado is a nurse. 
She's walking around taking temperatures. She says every day she sees 50 patients and checks them for symptoms of coronavirus. This is in a hospital. This is a makeshift, muddy refugee camp in Matamoros, Mexico. Laundry hangs in lines between rows and rows of tents. From some parts, you can see Brownsville, Texas. The U.S. is just a few feet away across the border. But for those residents, it might as well be across the ocean. To protect herself from coronavirus, she wears her N95 mask. Then another mask on top of that, protective goggles and gloves. There are 1,200 people living here, families with young children. There's a small section built apart from the rest of the tents where people who test positive for COVID-19 can be isolated. Although they, too, are in tents. It's not possible to isolate all 1,200 people. And with this disease that spreads exponentially, they're worried about when, not if, it gets out of control. So Nurse Miladis is doing everything she can to keep people safe. The camp is right on the river. Miladis reminds a mom to keep the kids out of the water. The water is disgusting. It has caused infections and pink eye. Mutilated bodies have been found floating in the river right by the camp. They're at the mercy of the elements. Flooding from the Rio Grande, hurricanes, extreme heat. And of course, like all of us, they're also living through a pandemic. All of these families, all of them are asylum seekers from around the world, waiting to enter the United States, including Nurse Miladis. She and her 23-year-old daughter left Cuba in May of 2019. She says she left because of the political situation there. It's not free, and it's getting too difficult. They've been waiting on the Mexican side of the southwest border for more than a year. She says when she left Cuba, she never thought it would take so long. She's talking about MPP, or Migrant Protection Protocols. That's the policy that is also known as Remain in Mexico. The Department of Homeland Security announced a new policy in late 2018. Here's former DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen. Once implemented, individuals arriving in or entering the United States from Mexico illegally or without proper documentation may be returned to Mexico for the duration of their immigration proceedings. They will not be able to disappear into the United States. It doesn't matter how they arrived. If they came the so-called right way, presenting themselves at the border asking for asylum, or whether they came the so-called illegal way, crossing the river or the desert, and are apprehended by border agents. They were all processed quickly in the U.S. and then released back to Mexico to wait for their legal hearings. DHS framed Remain in Mexico as a humanitarian approach. But the truth is, this is a humanitarian crisis. Every day these families spend in Matamoros, they run the risk of being assaulted, robbed, kidnapped, raped, or extorted by local cartels. The remaining Mexico policy has turned these people into sitting ducks for the cartels to pick off. And it's not just this one camp in Matamoros. There are tens of thousands of families spread out at every city across the border. They don't have work permits for Mexico. Some don't speak Spanish. Many are traumatized. These are people who are fleeing danger. 
Under international law, the United States is supposed to care for refugees seeking asylum. But instead, there's no shelter, no health care, no food, no legal aid, no school for the thousands of children stranded on the other side of the border. But DHS is claiming that this policy protects the U.S. from asylum seekers abusing the asylum system. So the bottom line is this, all too frequently, if they say the magic words, they get a free pass into America. The magic words she's talking about? When asylum seekers say, I'm afraid for my life. The Trump administration, as we've all become unsettlingly accustomed to, is exaggerating and lying to the public. Here's Vice President Mike Pence talking to CNN in June 2019. We want to, to end the days where, where people believe they can come into the country, mm. uh, make uh, a claim of asylum from oppression or deprivation or violence in Central America or elsewhere, and then be released uh, into the country on their own reconnaissance only to, only to vanish uh, in, into the nation. 90% of the people never show up for their hearing in the, in the months ahead. He's lying. Only 1% of asylum seekers didn't show up for their hearing in 2019. Not exactly the plague of immigrants running around inside the United States that the president and his team would like us to believe, is it? So what did Remain in Mexico actually accomplish? It basically ended the asylum system. Back in 2016, about half of asylum seekers' claims were denied. But in the first year of Remain in Mexico, out of 47,000 cases, Less than 10,000 were processed. Of those cases, only 0.1% were granted. That means only 11 people were granted asylum that year. When Miladis and her daughter tried to get into the U.S. in August 2019, they waited in line on the bridge to Brownsville, Texas. A border official processed her paperwork, then dropped her off on the Mexican side of the border. She didn't quite understand why, but she also didn't think it would be very long. Over the last year, her court date has been postponed several times. She's been waiting here for 14 months so far, and there is no end in sight. Bueno, sobre esta fecha, siempre hay que tomarlo con mucha calma y no desesperarnos porque... Milady says you have to be calm and try not to despair. She throws herself into her work as a nurse so she can be 100% present for her patients. Sometimes she has to test people for COVID. Sometimes she has to check vital signs. And when she's not with patients, she's cleaning the clinic. She says that the situation that she and the other 1,200 asylum seekers are in is incredibly precarious. Me preparo psicológicamente. Porque si hay un gran enemigo es la mente. She says she has to prepare herself psychologically so that the sadness and worry won't betray her in front of the patients. When she can, she waits until she's alone to cry and feel the full weight of her fears and anxiety. She volunteers with a nonprofit at the Matamoros camp that's been providing medical services to these families. It's called Global Response Management, or GRM for short. I am very used to uh, like working in war zones and working in displacement situations. And 
what I was seeing there with them was was just um, it, it just mind blowing. This is Helen Perry. I am the executive director for Global Response Management, and I am also an acute care nurse practitioner. Helen wouldn't say this, but I can. She's a badass. Helen is an Army veteran, 11 years of service before joining GRM. GRM provides water, portable bathrooms and showers, and medical services. And they don't just care for the 1,200 residents at the camp. They also treat the estimated 10,000 people forced to remain in Mexico who are spread out across the city of Matamoros. Support from the Mexican government has basically been non-existent. Financially, none. You know, I think I think one of the struggles that they have is that one, like their healthcare infrastructure is also very limited. The state government for Tamaulipas has made it very clear that they're not interested in helping anyone who's displaced, you know, whether they be Mexican or whether they be, you know, Central American, they're just not interested in that. And so it's it's been very challenging. And as for the U.S. government that created this humanitarian crisis? Nada. Nothing. The administration has been not supportive at all. If it wasn't for private donors, DRM wouldn't have gone as far as it has. That's the irony of all of this, right? Is like, this is all totally preventable. So by creating MPP, like all they did was create a humanitarian disaster. They didn't, they didn't effectively help asylum at all. Uh, in fact, they made it worse. The consequences of the remaining Mexico policy are intentional. It's part of the deterrence and scare tactics method. They're trying to make it as difficult as possible to get asylum, hoping that fewer people will attempt it. It is now up to Mexico to care for all these families asking for help, but Mexico isn't doing anything to help them. Tens of thousands of vulnerable people are fleeing violence and persecution in their own countries and have ended up in a life or death situation while they're waiting for their hearings. And of course, the Department of Homeland Security and the Trump administration have washed their hands of it, claiming it's not their problem. Even though they forced asylum seekers to wait in Mexico. Our country is full. Our area is full. The sector is full. Can't take you anymore. I'm sorry. Can't happen. So turn around. And let's keep in mind that the United States is obligated under international law to receive asylum seekers and not place them at further risk. These rules have been in place around the world since World War II. Ever since countries did not entry to refugees fleeing Nazi persecution. They're meant to stop another massive atrocity from happening. But now, the U.S. has turned its back on those agreements. My name is Sarah Valdez. I'm the co-director of the children's program at Raices. Everyone's seen the images of the kids at the border after they've been separated from their parents and then thrown in a cold cement cell. Those are our kids. Those are the kids that the Raices Children's Program represents. After everything they've been through, they have to go through an immigration court process, and we help advocate for them, fight for them, defend them so that they can stay here in this country legally and be safe. I have clients that are very young. One of my youngest clients right now is seven. And when I go into court with her, it's me and a seven-year-old. Her feet don't touch the floor. We really feel like we're a part of these kids' lives and we take pride in their accomplishments and we get excited for them when something good happens in their case. We get excited for them when they tell us good news, like they did really well on their math test or when they talk about their favorite teacher at school. Our work depends on you. Donate at homelandandsecuritypodcast.com. 
At the beginning of 2020, in February, Helen was hospitalized with one of her lungs suddenly collapsed. Now they think it was COVID, which is a little ironic. But while I was in the hospital, like we were watching the news about COVID and China and, and what was going on. And that was about the time that they were starting to look at closing down airports and things like that. And it was funny because my husband has for years played this game called, I think it's called Plague, Plague Inc. on his phone. Plague Inc. has been a game since 2012. The basic premise is you, the player, are a plague-making decisions on how to best infect and kill the entire world's human population. Yeah, like you're the plague. Like, so you're choosing like, I want to be a virus or I want to be a bacteria and I'm going to spread via animals or I'm going to spread via airway. As we live through the coronavirus pandemic, it sounds a bit creepy. Racing around the world trying to evolve faster than a cure can be developed. It's even creepier when you realize it's based on real scientific models of the spread of infectious disease. But it was funny because they were talking about just closing the flights from China to the United States. And my husband, Matt, was like, nope, 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 that's not how it works. And he was like, look at this game. The game will show you why it doesn't work. Helen realized that the Matamoros refugee camp was in a dangerous situation. It is only a matter of time before this hits us. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be there before we know it. And then when it gets there, it's going to spread like wildfire. A whole month before the president of the United States declared COVID-19 a national emergency, Helen and the team at DRM were already making plans for how to protect the Matamoros camp. Like, we don't fully know how this spreads. So let's just assume that it spreads via airborne, uh, which now we know is not totally incorrect. Um, and and let's just assume that it's like absolute worst case scenario. Let, okay, like how are we, we need a plan for isolating people. We need a plan for what happens when people get really sick and need to be intubated. By the first or second week of March, we were actually on the ground in Matamoros meeting with local health officials to figure out like what their response was going to be, which is when we realized that they didn't have a response. We found out that the city of Matamoros is a city of 500,000 people and they have eight ventilators uh, and they weren't even sure if they all worked. Helen and her team hustled to get as many supplies as possible. They figured out what could be reused and stocked up on things like N95 masks before there weren't any left. She knew that the pandemic was proving incredibly hard to contain in normal circumstances. And here in Matamoros, she had to figure out how to protect 1,200 asylum seekers living in tents in a muddy camp where they share porta potties. They have no way to isolate or keep six feet of distance between each other. Sometimes you have to work smarter and not harder. And sometimes the medicine that we used, say, 100 years ago, is actually really effective. You know, the closest thing to this that we've seen in our most recent history is the 1918 Spanish flu. And so I had a, a medical historian that we know who was able to get us the 1918 British Army's epidemiological field guide for Spanish flu. She read the 1918 field guide cover to cover and found strategies to apply to Matamoros. You should encourage people to mop and not sweep because sweeping will aerosolize viral particulates and infect more people. And I was like, oh, dang, that's super smart. Like never would have thought of that. Uh, you should encourage people to air out their bedding during the daytime because UV light will kill viral particles. 
They didn't know that. They just knew that people who aired out their bedding tended to get less sick. You should make sure that there's good ventilation in the sleeping spaces so that they're not just like breathing in each other's air. Helen is pretty humble about a brilliant stroke of genius. The people who wrote it in 1918 were a lot smarter than I was. I was just smart enough to be like, hey, I bet they had some good ideas. We should read about that. Like those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Because of her foresighting planning, the camp at Matamoros didn't have a case until the end of June, even though there were at least a thousand confirmed cases in the city around them. 95% of it, which were all within walking distance of where we live. We kept it out of the camp for a very, very long time using those simple strategies. But the pandemic isn't over, and she's bracing for what's to come. I think we're preparing mentally that it's going to get really bad going into the winter months. You know, once, especially once the temperatures start gets getting colder, it's going to get particularly severe. It's only a matter of time before we start seeing deaths. I mean, that's, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. While Helen and Miladis were to prepare the Matamoros camp for the inevitable arrival of the virus, the Department of Homeland Security made it worse for thousands and thousands of families stranded at the border. Despite having a $52 billion budget, DHS did absolutely nothing to prepare the people they had put in danger. And for those already in the U.S. and trapped in the system, DHS wasn't even providing masks to protect people stuck inside detention. When the pandemic hit, immigration advocates, lawyers, and the people detained inside started clamoring for relief. The officers have masks and we don't. We're quarantining our dorms. We cannot leave. Please help us get out of here. I don't feel safe at all. And this is not only me. Everybody here is feeling the same thing. This is Dr. Sirius Sarsgari. He is 60 years old and has a history of pneumonia and lung infection, which means he's high risk for COVID-19. He called us from Wing Correctional Facility in Louisiana. He was detained there in late March of 2020. With respect to coronavirus, it's absolutely dangerous. He's terrified that COVID-19 is going to kill him while he's trapped in this place. Dr. Asghari is a material science professor at Sharif University of Technology in Iran. He came to the States in 2017 for what he thought would be a short visit to meet his daughter's fiance. While he was on his flight coming here, the U.S. canceled his visa. When he landed, he was arrested for allegedly stealing trade secrets on previous trips, as well as visa fraud. He was released on bond and stayed with his daughter while fighting his case for two and a half years. The judge threw out the case mid-trial, citing that there was not enough evidence that Dr. Asghari had done any of the things he was accused of. With this acquittal, he was finally ready to go back home to his wife in Iran. But instead, he was taken into ICE custody. Because of all the news about coronavirus, Dr. Asghari asked a friend to pack a few masks and send his stuff to him in detention. I spoke to the manager, management over there and requested the mask for myself and three others, which were, you know, two of them elderly. And he said no. You heard that right. He brought his own mask to detention, and the management wouldn't let him or anyone else use them. But what could he do? Many of the staff weren't even wearing masks. It's up to them, but I would say 50-50, yes, they wear masks. He created some padding out of clothes so he could be comfortable during this conversation. I'm sitting on the floor because there are no chairs around the phone. In front of him were open toilets. 
The only word that I have is disgusting. Just imagine a large room, 100 feet long and 25 feet wide. And, and there is only one shower and two toilets and three tanks. No sunlight can get in because all the windows are covered. You can imagine, I mean, how depressing is this situation. As he spoke, the closest person to him was too close. He is something like 10 inches apart. The first case of COVID-19 in the U.S. was in late January. At the time that we're talking to Dr. Asgari in early April, 45 states had issued at least partial stay-at-home orders. But the detention center staff weren't taking the necessary precautions against the pandemic. Business is as usual here. I don't see any real measures for coronavirus here. I mean, I don't see it. All they do is just take the temperature, and you know, that's not enough at all. Dr. Asgari and the other men in his section were responsible for cleaning their space. There are no gloves, you know, usually available. The sanitizers, there is no sanitation, no sanitizers. This far into his immigration process, Dr. Asgari has come up with a grim theory for why ICE seems to have so little regard for the health and safety of the immigrants in their care. Don't see them as human beings. It's that they are objects to be removed only. We don't care about what happened to these people. Objects. Or as Jose Antonio Vargas put it, non-essential humans. That's how the government sees us. On April 28th, less than a month after the call, Dr. Asgari tested positive for the coronavirus at Wien Correctional Center. He recovered in isolation. And on June 2nd, Dr. Asgari was finally deported home. A week later, a Wien guard died of COVID-19. More than 200 men detained there have gotten the virus. ICE is incapable. I would argue unwilling to provide even the bare minimum care for his charges before and during the pandemic, which is why so many have been calling for people in detention to be released. Similar conditions have rightfully led to the early parole of some people in jails across the country. New York City released 1,500 people from jails. Why can't ICE release asylum seekers from the cells they're locked up in? There are 20,000 people detained in ICE facilities across the country. For months, ICE refused to release anyone. ICE is still deporting people, though, some of whom have taken coronavirus back to their countries of origin. In July, 11 countries said that people deported back tested positive for coronavirus, which they almost certainly contracted in the U.S. The danger is very real. As of this taping, at least eight people have died from coronavirus while in ICE custody. And more than 6,000 have tested positive. That means a third of the people trapped inside have gotten the virus. And the numbers keep growing. My name is Giovanni Ordoñez. I am the Volunteer Operations Manager here at Raices. Back in 2018, we saw family separation in a very real way. And because of that, we had literally thousands of people wanting to get engaged in some certain way. They identified that what was happening was unjust. 
asylum seekers are treated in very negative ways. At the point of being released from detention, a majority of the families have been separated. They are told that they have no rights in the United States and that their children have no rights such as going to school through embrace of our undocumented brothers and sisters. They are able to restore the dignity and respect that no human should be neglected no matter their status. Our work depends on you. Donate at homelandandsecuritypodcast.com. As coronavirus spread across the country, DHS did almost nothing to protect the immigrants that it keeps unnecessarily locked up. The Trump administration saw an opportunity and jumped at the chance to close the border down. The pandemic created a new, incredibly effective excuse to deny immigrants entry to the U.S. Just as remaining Mexico effectively ended asylum at the border, now DHS wants to close down all immigration. I think it's safe to say that asylum is over in the United States. This is Fernanda Echavarri. She's a reporter covering immigration for Mother Jones. It really is virtually impossible to seek asylum and get asylum in the United States right now. Basically, since late March, the Trump administration implemented a rule that has allowed the government to turn away asylum seekers and other immigrants for public health reasons. So the rule was originally temporary. Um, it was to be renewed every 30 days. And then in late May, it was extended indefinitely. The way the Trump administration sort of used the pandemic is they went to the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and said that the border should remain closed until the CDC determines that the danger of further introduction of COVID-19 into the U.S. has ceased. The fact is, the Trump administration and DHS are using coronavirus as a cover to secure their long-standing goal to stop immigration. While the border is closed because of the pandemic, DHS has been hatching new plans for how to keep immigrants out once the pandemic is over. In early June, DHS published a 161-page document with proposed changes to current immigration rules. What a lot of advocates and immigration attorneys saw was that this is a combination of everything that the White House has wanted to do to gut asylum in the United States. It's a look inside the minds of the Trump administration anti-asylum goal. For example, if you're flying to the U.S. to apply for asylum, but opt for a cheaper flight that has two or more layovers in different countries. So if you flew from Venezuela to Colombia to Mexico City to JFK, disqualified. If you make a mistake when you file your income taxes with the IRS, even as little as $20 off from what you actually made, that could disqualify you. DHS wants to change the rules so that people can be denied based solely on the paper application and without ever seeing the person in court. Which makes it incredibly difficult for people seeking asylum who didn't have legal help when they filled out their application. It would also disqualify a huge number of people by changing what political persecution means. So if you are fleeing Syria or you're fleeing an area that is just ruled by a terrorist group or a drug cartel, you don't qualify for asylum because you're not fleeing your government. For now, these are all proposals, but it's a peek at what the Department of Homeland Security is trying to do. It's death by a thousand cuts. Over and over again, the Department of Homeland Security has shown us that they'll keep pushing for harsher and harsher immigration rules, no matter how many legal hurdles they run into. 
Even if they are forced to stop, DHS just regroups and tries again. Remember family separation? Just months after it was stopped in 2018, there were news reports that the administration was floating a new way to split up immigrant parents and kids. Now, with a cover of coronavirus, they're trying to do it again. That's right. Family separation 2.0 is here. Honestly, if it weren't for the COVID pandemic, we wouldn't have gotten to this point. Andrea Mesa is the director of Raices Family Detention Services. Since she joined us in 2015, she's been playing a sick and twisted version of Guacamole. There was a massive expansion of detention facilities during the Obama years. Family separation under Trump? And now this. Early on in the pandemic, Andrea Mesa and a group of lawyers went to U.S. District Court Judge G for help. Hey, Judge G, there's a pandemic. These detention centers aren't really safe and sanitary when there's not a pandemic, and they're really not going to be safe and sanitary with coronavirus going around. Um, can you please do something to get ICE to get the kids out of detention as soon as possible? There is a rule that states that kids must be released from detention within 20 days. And Raices wanted to make sure that it's being enforced. But ICE didn't comply. Instead, ICE officials went to all three family detention centers and pulled all the parents and kids into unannounced meetings. And the ICE officers just point blank asked them, do you want us to let your kids out of detention without you or do you want to stay here with your kids? Every single family said, no, you can't take my kids from me. Uh, we're going to stay here together. Parents are being given an impossible choice. Either separate from your child or you can roll the dice and keep your child locked up with you during a highly contagious global pandemic. They're basically saying, either way, it's your choice. This is on you. Family Separation 2.0 works around the rules put in place to get kids out of detention as quickly as possible. ICE is using this loophole to basically blame parents for the separation. Now, ICE is asking families this same question as soon as they arrive at the detention centers. They have no idea what the process is, what they're doing there, what anything is at this detention center. They just got there, and on day one, they're being asked this question. So far, not one family has agreed to be separated, giving DHS an excuse to keep kids locked up without taking the blame. Trump is using COVID as a cover for hurting people, hurting immigrant people, and that even if we win a temporary battle, we have to know that indefinite detention is going to be the alternative. There is something especially scary about a president focused on advancing his brutal immigration agenda when the entire country is in the middle of the biggest crisis we've seen in a century. In the middle of all of this, DHS got stronger and even more cruel. Iranian professor Dr. Asghari says the way a country chooses to enforce its laws can overshadow the essence of the laws themselves. Kneeling on that disgusting floor of a detention center, just so he could talk on the phone, Dr. Asghari saw the writing on the wall. Brutality in enforcement can change democratic constitution to tyranny. This is exactly what is happening. ICE, by brutal enforcement, is violating the spirit of constitution in this country. Our democracy is at risk of falling into tyranny. This might sound alarmist or crazy to some of you, but it's not. It's time for us to take a look at what is happening in our country. 
The Department of Homeland Security was supposed to be about rooting out terrorism. But when immigration got lumped in with national security, it went after people like me, calling us threats, rounding us up, denying us rights. And now we're seeing DHS use those tactics on American citizens, deploying heavily armed troops to protest across the country and throwing people into unmarked cars. The words and actions from President Trump and the Department of Homeland Security have shown that this is an attack on our democracy. I never, ever imagined that a corrupt executive could turn this into his own police force, sending unmarked private police, in many ways his own private militia, into Portland. They haul people into cars. They use tear gas, terrible things on our own people. You want to defend America, but you're hurting Americans. DHS has the power to strike anyone. That's next time on Homeland Insecurity. Homeland Insecurity is a Raíces production. Produced by Alexandra Garreton and executive produced by Sarah Barrett, Jonathan Ryan, and Brian Carmel. With production help from Carmen Graterol, Aldonza Contreras, and Natasha Pizzi. Thank you to Lexi Harrison Cripps for her reporting from Matamoros. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. If you're moved by what you've learned in this podcast, then we need you now more than ever to get involved in the fight for migrant justice. Go to RaicesTexas.org to learn more. And one more thing. We're getting a lot of really disturbing comments on Apple and other platforms. Stuff like, you're here illegally. When you read these, you can tell it's from people who didn't even listen to the podcast. They just want to attack me because I'm an immigrant. The best way to help us fight these kinds of attacks is to rate the podcast and leave a review. If you listen this far, we absolutely want to hear from you.